The W. Alton Jones Adult Weekend presents a series of classes entitled A New Way of Looking at First Principles by Brother Harry Tennant in 1972. The subject of his second class is The Promise of God. Because if you understood the first very simple diagrams, and particularly the angle at which Adam finishes, sloping towards the ground and then finally goes into it and he dies, then I think you will perhaps also understand that that slope indicates something else as well. Because man isn't only inclined towards the ground because he's mortal, he's inclined towards the ground by his nature in his mind. Now so this is the second part of man's nature. After he sinned, it's almost as though what Adam chose, God froze into his being. And that's true of everybody who follows him. I'll, I'll try to prove this in a moment. But um, it's pretty clear when you look at the rest of scripture that uh, this is stated. Now I'll take you to one verse which is very interesting. It's in Genesis chapter 6. Now verse 5 And the Lord God saw the wickedness of man was very great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And that's speaking about man. And that's about his thoughts. And by this time in just before the flood, man had gone right over to wicked imagination. Now, we might say, oh, well, that, that, that's just because they'd gone in a state of degeneration and the whole world was thinking evilly. That's not how God sees it. The interesting thing is, when he talks about man after the flood, when only Noah and his wife and his sons are alive, he still says the, the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. And there's nobody there but Noah and his wife and Ham and Shem and Japheth and their wives. Nobody else. And they're the righteous and they've been delivered. And God says to them, as a warning to them and to their children, that the imagination of the heart of man is evil from his youth. It's part of his nature to produce evil. He doesn't now need a serpent. Not that the serpent was God's means of producing evil. That wasn't it. It was really God's means also of producing good. Having a free will, they could have made their choice. They were not leaning over in any way to begin with. They were not inclined to follow the serpent. Any more than they were inclined to follow God. They followed the serpent on no evidence. None whatsoever. And that's what's worth thinking over. There was no evidence. He shall not surely die. And somebody might say, well, how did Adam know what it was to die? He'd had no relations who died. How did Adam know what it was to die? Adam had died. The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam. He'd already given him an experience of death. So he knew what it was to pass out of existence. Does anybody here who's had an operation knows? 
Only a step beyond that, is it not? So it's no use saying he didn't know. He understood very well. And he chose the serpent's way on no evidence whatsoever. It was just philosophical reasoning. Now, the mind of man after that was inclined towards evil. Perhaps I can illustrate this. There are those who would like to say, well, every man is his own Adam. So everybody starts upright. There we are. So Adam's children started upright, and then they sinned, and then they died. And so it went on. Now, is that right? It's, it's an interesting idea. It's one that appeals to the philosophical mind. It appeals. Is it right? Well, that's a baby. And it dies. But it hasn't sinned. It nothing to do with sin at all. It was leaning over when it was born. So man's mortality has got nothing to do with his own personal sin. His mortality is inherited. His personal sins are his responsibility. I mean, there are those who, you know, in trying to work all this out, try to say that this is something that man is responsible for, his mortality. And it's got to be forgiven or something. Well, this is, you know, this is just plain unscriptural. He's got to be delivered out of that situation, but he carries no guilt for being mortal. There's no guilt in being mortal. He has no choice about it. Nor is there any guilt either in having a sinful mind, a mind that produces sin. You were born with it, but one is responsible for in no way trying to prevent what our mind would produce, personal transgression. And so uh, there's a lot lying behind that. But there, this, this baby, I think, helps us to explain that every man is born and all Adam's children were born, and they went on being born, all in one form. It was a world of leaning men. Nobody, apart from the first man, has been upright. We are leaning towards the grave. We are leaning towards evil. That is the basic scripture teaching. Now, go back to the first diagram and just have a look at this and see man in his dilemma here, in this enclosed circle, finished. The only, only way in which God can help people is to do that. Resurrection from the dead. That's the only way. Resurrection must become a basic teaching if there is to be salvation. And that is the basic teaching. That's the whole teaching of the New Testament. Resurrection from the dead. It's the reason for the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the reason for the emphasis on resurrection everywhere one goes. Anything other than resurrection is going back to that old idea that man is immortal and all you have to do is to redirect him. Send him up instead of down. Well, that's not the Bible way. The Bible way is the deliverance by resurrection from the dead. All right? Once you've got this basic diagram, it helps you with the rest. Now, I'll pursue this a little bit further. Um, the question of inclination towards sin 
and so on, is what the Bible means when it says that which is born of flesh is flesh. The flesh lusteth against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. That's it. Or as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, among whom we all had our conversation in time past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. That's it. That's our basic state. We're not to blame for it. It came from Adam, right in the beginning. And that's where we are. The flesh profiteth nothing. Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? We know all the scriptures. Brethren and sisters, it's time we did know. Our world doesn't believe that basic doctrine. That's the one doctrine it's called into question. The man who goes out into the street, batters an old lady over the head, steals her money, and walks on his way, is said to be sick. There's not some basic sinfulness lying in him. There's more sympathy for him than for the old lady. And this is our world. If a man gets perverted, in some way or another, he's sick. The Bible says he's not sick, he's a sinner. And the reason lies in himself. And the basic philosophy of our world these days is that man is all right, but occasionally he goes wrong. The Bible teaching is that man is basically wrong and he needs God to help him to go right. And if we, get, if we lose that, then we're lost. And for young people, if you begin to accept this philosophy of life that's around us everywhere, we're com our world is lost, not just you. You can't question anybody, because the Russians must be right. And the Chinese. And North Vietnam, and South Vietnam, and the drug addicts and the non-addicts. They must all be right. In fact, there's, there's no way, as a matter of fact, in which one can escape from the dilemma, because you've got, in the end, to say, well, what is right? Is it man in the mass or man in the individual? Is man his own God? You know, there is no way out of this. And our world's reached this, and there's no way out. It's now had to question every single authority that it's got. It hasn't got an authority. Because once you, once you have thrown this over, that man needs discipline and policing, in some way or another, you're lost. Altogether. It happens in marriage, right? The fact the man breaks up his marriage? Oh, well, you know, he's a decent sort of chap, but he happens to have broken up his marriage. Well, the law of Moses has been dead. He was not to be excused. I know there are people who sin because they're sick, but the majority of people sin because they like it and because they want to. Later on, you become so addicted, maybe, that you can't get out of it. So that's, that's another situation. But there's the basic situation that's set out by God in the Scripture. Now, notice how God deals with that situation. And he deals with that one throughout. That's what he deals with. Genesis 3. The first of the promises of God. Genesis chapter 3. And verse 15. God is speaking to the serpent here. But what he has to say embraces the whole of mankind. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. That's the gospel. 
It's the complete gospel. It's, as it were, the telescope all shut up. And all that God is going to do after that is to extend it. By the promises made to Abraham, the promises made to David, and so on. Then the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, until finally the full telescope of God is opened out. But when he brings it all together, it's still there in Genesis 3.15. Now notice, and it's clear enough, and it's, it's missed easily, the enmity is not the result of Adam's sin. God said, I will put enmity. It's a result of Adam's sin in the sense that it's a consequence of it. But it's something that God injects into this situation. The battle between good and evil. If there be no battle, there will be no victory, no salvation. The world will be all gone leaning over and finally, no doubt, annihilated itself. But God injects into this situation a battle between good and evil. It's God who does it. Now, have a look. Genesis 3.15, of course, deals with this situation. Except that it doesn't deal with man. That promise is the woman's seed. Notice that? The virgin birth is promised in Genesis 3. I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed and he doesn't speak of Adam's seed. The reason for that is that there's no deliverance in that situation. Whatever child this man has must always be leaning over and what's more can produce nothing but death. There is, there is no remedy in that situation. However long he goes on. Our 20th century has learned all its miracles and all its wonders but it's still in that can't get out. However clever man becomes, however he widens his knowledge, and by the way, the more he widens his knowledge, the more ignorant he is. Because if you have a circle like that, that defines your ignorance now, there it is. The more you get to know, the bigger is your circle. And the more you learn about your ignorance. This is exactly what man is doing all the time. And so whereas here you could have Leonardo da Vinci who could pretty well know all that there was to know about science. Now, everybody has to divide it up. And that's this little man with his bit about science, and that's this little man. Each is a specialist in his own field, and so you've got to now refer to this specialist and to another. But when it gets a bit bigger still, you'll have to break down his, his area now. It's become bigger still. He can't com sort of comprehend that in one mind. It's got to be divided into two. And so it goes on. So man's ignorance becomes manifest the greater his knowledge is, because, uh, well, he's just working inside the great infinity of God, isn't he, that's all? He wasn't aware of his ignorance, actually, when he was there. It was still there, but he wasn't aware of it. He now becomes increasingly aware. So God allows his knowledge to increase and frustrates him by his ignorance. Well, there we are then, Genesis chapter 3.15, and there's man in his first sin. There's man now as he has the first promise from God. Enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed, and there's to be a battle. And in this battle, uh, it's to be a battle of the woman's seed and not of man's seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. I don't think it was possible from that Genesis 3.15 for Adam and Eve to discover what it was all about. I don't think they ever really knew. Uh, they tried, you know, to understand all that God promised them there, but not having the whole telescope, they weren't able to grasp. 
And in chapter 4, for a moment Eve thought that when Cain was born, he was the child that was promised by God. She'd misunderstood the promise when she thought that. But she wasn't to blame. It wasn't possible at that stage for any, either Adam or Eve, or even their children, to get to know what God was about. But as the promises go on, you know how the virgin birth opens out. Well, I won't deal with that, but it's in quite a number of places, Isaiah 7 and Micah chapter 5, and then in Matthew and in Luke, then in Galatians 4, and then in 1 Timothy 2, the chapter that we went to earlier on, where it says, and yet she shall be saved through childbearing. You remember? Adam was first formed, and then Eve. Then Adam, then Eve's sin, you remember. Then it says, but she shall be saved through childbearing. And that's interesting. And it doesn't mean that she'll be saved in childbearing. Not talking about people being saved in childbearing at all. Though very happily in our present world this happens. But the act by which she brings into being another leaning child was going to be used by God to bring into being the Saviour. He who was the mother of all living was going to be used despite her sin and despite the fact that God multiplied her sorrow and her conception, yet she was to be used finally to produce the Saviour. And that's what 1 Timothy 2 is about, as far as Eve is concerned, and the production of the Saviour. Now, if you've noticed in Genesis chapter 3, there's a list of curses given there upon them. You know, cursed is the ground for thy sake, and so on. There are the curses. And the rest of the Bible is dealing with the deliverance from curse, and the opposite of curse is blessing. Right? And blessing is what God enshrines in all his promises. Now, we'll go to the first of them, shall we? We'll have a look at Genesis chapter 12. Now, we're all on home ground here, eh? The ground of our common ignorance. Now, I've tested you before on one of the lines of our ignorance. You've probably forgotten already. But, um, you know... Genesis chapter 12, to whom was the land first promised? You remember, I've asked some of you this question before. All right? And you've forgotten. All right. So the land is first promised to the seed. It's not promised to Abraham at all. Genesis 12 makes no promise of the land to Abraham. It's to the seed. It's going back to Genesis 3.15. It isn't, it isn't going on to Abraham's seed according to the flesh because the flesh profiteth nothing. Look, you can't, you can't get anything out of this lot. You can play with it for a million years and you can get nothing out of it. Even if evolution were right, you could get nothing out of it. If you evolve from mud, you get mud. Right? I mean, this is, this is a great thing to me about, about believing that our world came out of a blind, chaotic, unintelligent, unwise, something or other. It can't be going into anything. You can't get out of all that something better in the end. It can't have any direction or purpose. It's only when you start to look at what God is doing. So in Genesis chapter 12, so let's look. Get from thy kindred, from thy father's house, into a land that I will show thee. All right, now that, to Abraham, it's to everybody, everybody who wants to be saved. You've got to get from your kindred and from your father's house. Got to happen. Psalm 45, clear enough. 
The bride in Psalm 45 is made to forget her father's house. You have a look. All right? And I'll make of thee a great nation, and bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. So the curses of Genesis chapter 3 are now going to be reversed in Abraham. And the great nation, the Jews, sure, but is that what God is talking about here? Is that really what God is talking about in this chapter? Gone beyond that. Verse 3, and I will bless them that bless thee, curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed, all of them. All were cursed in Adam. All are going to be blessed in Abraham. Here is the kernel of the purpose of God. It can't have anything to do with fleshly descent, because it's all families. And blessing can't just come through flesh. So the families that are going to be linked together in this situation are not just those who are human families. It's, got, it's beyond that. What God is talking about here is out of every tongue and tribe, kindred and people. This is what he's talking about. Revelation. All gathered together in one, in Christ. All families of the earth are going to be blessed. And so here are the great promises. Opened out. True enough, opened out so it, it concerns the land. Because the land was cursed here. Cursed is the earth, the ground for thy sake. Sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread. All that's going to be reversed in the end. And the ground is going to be blessed. But there'll be no leaning people left in the end. None at all. All that will be left will be upright people. Not sinning, not dying. And what's more, they'll have a relationship with God himself in the end. Now that's how the promises are set out. And if you notice, and this is the point about these promises, if you notice, all the promises of God have got to have built into them the resurrection from the dead. It's no use talking, talking to Abraham if you don't deal with his situation, is it? He's going to live for a short time, deal with his situation. No use giving him a promise that doesn't deal with that situation. And God deals with it, and he deals with it every time. To whomsoever he gives the promise, he deals with it and tells them, sure enough, there'll be a resurrection from the dead. Genesis 15, look at it very carefully. Abram now wanting an heir because God had promised him a seed. He hasn't fully yet grasped who the seed is. He will. He'll, he'll get to know more. He thinks, first of all, that this steward of his house will do. He thinks later on that this child that's been begotten through Hagar will do. But it's no use. It's there, locked in this circle. No use having a child in that circle. You can't produce anything out of it. It can't produce salvation. There's no link with God in it. You see that? Because as soon as the bit of life you've got has gone, there's nothing. And if you, by the way, if you think that bit of life, and some perhaps young people get a bit embarrassed about that, where it says that he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul, and then somebody says, ah, oh, well, that bit of life, you see, did come from God, and there shows a special link between man and God. Just have the key verse, Genesis chapter 7. Might as well have it while you're about it. Genesis 7, verse 21. The flood and all flesh died that moved upon the earth, both of fowl and of cattle and of beast and every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth, and every man, all in whose nostrils was the breath of life. So it's not just a human matter, this breath of life. It's in every pig, every horse, every dog. It's in the insects, it's in the fish, in the birds, right? 
just man's God's way of keeping his creatures alive. He gives them life. The life was in him. It's all him. Nothing lives except it comes from God. It doesn't spontaneously generate life out of this circle down here. All life is from the first source. There's never been any other source at all. That's why it produces after its kind, whether it's tree or insect or whatever. Life is not spontaneously generated. Life is from God. And every creature has it. But it's just like the light here. That once the switch is off, the light disappears. The, the light is dead. The source of current is gone. Once that connection is broken, as it is in death, then man returns unto the ground from whence he was taken, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Not as a creature, as a personality, but just merely his power. It's his life. He's the fount of life. Now, in Genesis chapter 15, where Abram is trying in this wonderful wrestling of faith to come to a fuller understanding of the promises of God, he now wants to know how God will fulfill his purpose. And God takes him out and shows him the stars of heaven in verse 5. Very interesting, by the way, he doesn't show him the sun there. It's a night vision. The same vision as is in Psalm 8. The moon and the stars which thou hast made, what is man that thou art mindful of him? The sun hasn't come yet into this, the eternal day in the Lord Jesus Christ. There it is. And Abram believed God. Verse 6. And he counted it to him for righteousness. And that's the most wonderful verse there has been since the beginning of Adam's sin. It's a relationship. Well, insofar as this eternal purpose is concerned, you know, there are others like Enoch and so on in between. But this defines faith. It's not a fleshly relationship. This is what the serpent undid in the beginning. Hath God said? And the serpent said. And Abraham believed God. That's it. And that's, that's what faith is about. It isn't in this. You know, I sometimes hear people say, and no doubt you hear it, and if there are any people here that are like this, you know, who say, uh, perhaps if you're here and you're not a Christadelphian, might I just have a word to you for a minute? Just a, a brief word to try to understand your situation. Um, I'll tell you why. People sometimes say, I realize, Mr. Tennant, that what you say is true. And I don't doubt that at all. I, I understand it very well. I've met Christadelphians before. I, if there is any truth, they've got it. The trouble is, I don't think it's for me. I'm not that sort of person. You say, well, what sort of person are you? You say, well, you know, I drive a truck. And I'm pretty well live that kind of life. Outside sort of life is the kind of life I live. And what you're talking about really doesn't quite match up with my experience. What's more, I'll tell you, what's more, I don't think I can ever live up to the things that you're talking about. I believe they're true, but I don't think I can live up to them. Now, the Bible isn't talking about whether you could live up to them. The Bible says, I know you can't. You can't live up. What I'm asking you to do is to believe in God. That's all. When I say all, I mean that's it. Is God true? I'm not asking whether you're good enough for God or whether you can make it at all. What God says is, will you believe in me? Lift yourself out of that circle into the eternal. That's all. That's the beginning. Matter of fact, it's the end as well. And there's no question of what kind of origins we've got, what kind of people we are. There aren't different people. We're all one people. We're all going to be dead one day. 
And it doesn't matter either once you're related to God. Doesn't matter. That's the beauty of it. Doesn't matter if you don't have if you don't have any resurrection, then you you certainly finish. So if you're if you know that the things that you hear are true, then believe them. And get associated with them. That's the point. That's the great thing. And uh, you'll discover that among Christadelphians are people from every walk of life. That makes us what we are. Not a perfect people by any means at all. But we certainly are the kind of people that have got all thoughts and conditions of men in our company. And there's somebody like you in our company. Now, in Genesis 15 then, God teaches man... Abram, the resurrection from the dead. Verse 12, when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. Now the words are right out of Genesis 3, are they not? The link. Has it now occurred to you that Adam experienced resurrection? by that deep sleep he had. It's an experience. But for Paul, Abram, Abram says, whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it? And God put him to sleep. And then awakened him. And he knew that his inheritance would be by resurrection from the dead. That's how God taught him. Now if we have doubts about that, come to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. Marvelous chapter. As a matter of fact, this chapter contains one of the most surprising statements in Scripture about Abram. What shall we say then that Abraham, our father, as appertaining to the flesh, hath found? All right? Tell me, he says. What about Abram according to the flesh? And if our diagram is right, he can find nothing. If it's according to flesh, then we must inherit directly from Abraham. And since you and I can't be linked to Abraham by flesh, because we're not his descendants, we're out of the promises of God. And what's more, if there is some advantage in salvation, that is, to those who are physically descended from Abraham, then there were seeds of salvation in that situation, and there aren't any. It's clear enough there are none in that situation that we've described in this diagram, and now notice, Paul makes this mighty clear. In fact, he's done it before in chapter 3. Let's cast your eye back, because in verse 20 he says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for through the law is the knowledge of sin. Verse 23, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's everybody. Jew and Gentile, now and then and in the future. What Abram found according to the flesh Verse 3, for what saith the scripture? Abram believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. It's faith then, not flesh. Spirit, not flesh. For to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. In other words, if you can do it by flesh, then God owes you something. If you can plead that in that situation there's a little bit of something in that situation you can say to God you've got to do something because of this then salvation is not of grace. 
When a man does it by works, it's like his daily wage packet, his weekly wage packet, there it is. His boss owes it to him. Got to give it, he's done his job. And his boss can't say when he gives it to him, well, there you are, that's a favor. He said, no, it's not, I've earned it. If you double it, that's a favor. All right. And so when it's by spirit, it's by grace. Now follow, and this is the key. Even as David also describeth the blessedness, this is the, this is the reversal of the curse, of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without work, and he doesn't mean you don't have to do work. Not that he's saying. It's apart from work. It doesn't rest on your work. If there are any works, they'll follow what you get to know. They'll not precede it, saying, Blessed are they whose sins, whose iniquities are forgiven, and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Now, if you think over what he's saying there, he's putting every man in the same condition, and it's in the condition of sin. No, go back to verse 5, and you'll see there's another word used there, more surprising than the other, and it's used about Abraham. Now, get hold of this, because this is something we don't get hold of, fear enough. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly. Make a note of it. It's in the context of Abraham. It can't have anything to do with anyone less than he. It's either Abraham or David. It's both, as a matter of fact. Surprising, isn't it? Abraham without God was ungodly. And he was justified, not by striving up heavenwards on a ladder, getting up to God, but by God reaching down and making a promise to him. He did nothing to deserve the promise. Oh, he may have been the kind of person who could respond, or whatever we might think. The point is that this came out of God and not out of man. That's the situation. Man without God is ungodly, whether he's Abraham or David or Peter or John. Fair enough. If you doubt it, look in chapter 5. There in chapter 5, Therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So that's us. We stand by faith. Now, verse 6. For when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's every one of us. Nobody out of this. These, as you know well enough, are the four labels given in Romans chapter 5 describing man. And if you've understood the diagram, it's a perfect description. What's it say? Look at it. The ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet, peradventure for a good man, some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love towards us, and that why we were yet sinners. Ungodly sinner, Christ died for us. Much more than being justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. So there they are. And in verse 6, the other word is there clear enough, when we were without strength. Weak is the word in the revised version and probably in the revised standard. Weak, ungodly, enemies and sinners. 
All right. That's you, and it's me, and there are no exceptions. It was Abraham and David. For the word ungodly that surprised us in the earlier part of Romans chapter 4 is clear enough everywhere else. That's the condition because we're leaning over towards sin. That's it. We don't just lean over towards the grave, we lean over towards sin. We are weak, ungodly, enemies, and sinners. And the wages of sin is death. And the circle is complete. And all is vanity and vexation of spirit. And that's Ecclesiastes who says it doesn't matter what you have. If you've got all human wisdom, got all human wealth, got all human buildings and every kind of human treasure, if you've read every kind of human book, if you've chosen every kind of human satisfaction, in the end you can't take it with you. For it's done under the sun. And all go to one place. That's it. And that's the hopelessness of man. And God's answer is by resurrection from the dead. Romans chapter 4, clear, isn't it? There he is. Now here's the promise, and it's not, it's got nothing to do with the fact that Abraham had Jewish children. Levaeus had the advantage of being nearer to hearing the promises of God, but it wasn't by that. That's what the Jews said, wasn't it? They said to Jesus, look, we're Abraham's children. That's the, we're Abraham's children. You can't talk to us like that. Obvious, wasn't it? He said, but if you're Abraham's children, you do his works. And his works were works of faith. Faith without works is dead. They were not works that gained salvation. They were works that responded to it. That we are created in Christ Jesus unto good works. That's the kind of work that we do. All our work put together will make us unprofitable servants. So we can't depend on those. If you were Abraham's children, you would do Abraham's work. But tell me, says Paul, if you're Abraham's children, why was Abraham circumcised? Uh, and they must have, you know, been shaking their head. He said, look, before God made the covenant with Abraham, he cut part of him off. He was telling him that flesh is no good before God. And what's more, he says, if you come back to me and say, ah, well, we are all circumcised and therefore are we Abraham's children, he says, tell me, did Abraham have the promises before he was circumcised or after? And they said before. He said, so therefore he can't be circumcision then. You know, and the answers of Paul here are absolutely wonderful, the way that the Jews are put into their place. Now, the fatherhood of Abraham... And here's the point. Have a look at the fatherhood of Abraham. All stated. Verse 13. For the promise that he should be heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. And so that's how his inheritance was to come. Not through law. And he could have had it through law. If it had been in normal inheritance, that would have been the law of sin and death wasn't through that. The law of Moses was a re-emphasis on the law of sin and death. It was the major variation that God produced on the law of sin and death. But it never produced life. Right? Now he says in verse 16, Therefore it is of faith that it might be by grace to the end that the promise might be sure to all the seed. Not to that only which is of the law, 
but to that also which is of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. And he can't be our father by flesh, it must be by spirit. So the great and mighty nation, in the end, the one that really matters, that Abraham will have, is the nation of faith. It's the nation in Genesis 12. The Jewish nation, in the end, will all have gone. The only nation left after, after all will be Jew and Gentile. They shall be neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female. They shall be all one in Christ Jesus. They shall all be the children of God by faith. And that's what Abraham is begetting. He's the father of us all. Now let's follow a little further. There's a marvel in this chapter. Um, verse 17, as it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations. Are you reading carefully? You know, I despair sometimes. I'm sure you're not, but there you are. Got to have it pointed out to us. I suppose we all have, somehow. Look, he said, I've made you a father of many nations, and he hadn't got a single boy. Hadn't got one. He didn't say, I am going to make you. He said, I have made you. It's done. And God said. No need now for God to do anything else. His word would accomplish that when until he sent it. Or it would come down like the gentle rain from heaven. But it would finally return unto him, bringing forth all that God had promised. But make a note of it. God didn't say, I'm going to make you a father. He said, I've done it. And what's more, he says in Genesis 15, as it is written. Notice that. And that fatherhood is by spirit, by faith. Before him whom he believed, who quickeneth the dead. Notice, who quickeneth the dead. It's got to be. No use talking to Abraham unless you're telling him about quickening the dead. Now, God gives to Abraham a personal experience. You say, well, I've, we've had one of the personal experiences about resurrection from the dead because he put him to sleep and then brought him back to vigor. All right, you're going to do it in another way now. Read it. Verse 18, who against hope believe in hope that he might become the father of many nations according to that which was spoken, which was spoken, the word of God, so shall thy seed be. And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead when he was about a hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb, he staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully persuaded that what he had promised he was able also to perform, and therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness, and that's resurrection. He couldn't have a child. He was dead. He hadn't got the means of producing children, neither had Sarah. If they'd wanted a child, they couldn't have had one. Right? So God renewed their power. And they were resurrected. Their dead bodies were rejuvenated. They had a child by resurrection. God couldn't have made it plainer. Abraham knew that salvation didn't come out of this, this circle of impotence, did he? Couldn't have come out of that. But instead of that, it came out of the power of God and by his grace. And they have a child according to God's 
mercy. A child not born of flesh but of spirit. Now, don't misunderstand that. It doesn't mean that the child wasn't a normal child. He was perfectly normal. But the process by which they were able to have it was started by the spirit. I find this, this record in Romans one of the most satisfying, deeply satisfying of all parts of Scripture. Just come to Galatians and you'll see that Paul takes this again in the promises. <coughs> we shall be reading a little of this um, later on this evening, God willing. Chapter 3. <coughs> What's the argument in chapter 3? It's the argument of flesh and spirit. They were arguing. Verse 2. This only would I learn of you, receive ye the spirit by the works of the law, or by the hearing of faith. Works or faith. Are ye so foolish, having begun in the spirit, are ye now made perfect in the flesh? Have ye suffered so many things in vain, if it be yet in vain? Verse 6. Even as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Twice then. Romans 4, here, out of that Genesis 15. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. And that's the gospel. Got that? And the gospel doesn't lie in, in the inheritance of the land. That's not the gospel. That is an aspect of the gospel. When I say it's not the gospel, it isn't the kernel of the gospel. The kernel of the gospel has got to do with that situation. Right? And God deals with that situation. When God says, in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed, he's talking about the eternal. When every single creature on earth shall finally be immortal when the whole earth should be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. And if you think about this now, if there's a resurrection from the dead and you stand upon earth, in the end, it doesn't matter whether you stand in Palestine or not. The fact that it is Palestine for Abraham is an aspect of the gospel for him. But when Paul describes it in Romans chapter 4, he doesn't say anything about Palestine. He doesn't need to, because he brought back now Abraham to earth. And he says the promise that Abraham should be heir of the world. Right? It'll all be his. All parts of it. And so all that belong to Abraham will inherit the earth. Not just the land. The land is that aspect that gives it a central feature in the Lord Jesus Christ that brings all the promises of God right down finally to Calvary. That's the point. But the inheritance is of the world as a whole. And the meek shall inherit the earth and delight themselves in the abundance of peace. That's it. All right. Well, there it is. This is, this is Galatians chapter 3. Clear enough. It's the, it's the way of faith, the way of life. There was the gospel. That's what it is. It's all based on resurrection from the dead. Now, I think I've got about five minutes more on, on that tape. Is that all right, Sir Howard? Pardon? You're okay. Thank you. And on yours too. Thank you. I just, I just like now to bring together our, our threads because there are things missing. And it's the questions I want to ask you now. 
It's all right having a look at this, and I'll rub everything out now, except the problem, and then you'll see that uh, we haven't dealt with our problem. Our basic problem, we've got the answer to it, but we haven't dealt with the problem itself. And it's that that I want us to have a look at. All right? Now, I'll just review things very carefully for you, and then you'll see what it is. We've got our eternal God then, have we? And um, having got that, and we've got the earth, and we've got our first man made upright, then he sins and becomes mortal, and also inclined to sin and therefore dies. Now, we've got that situation, and we've seen that in that there's hopelessness, there's nothing at all, that this is the weak, the ungodly, the enemy, and the sinner, and that the only way that we can get anything out of that is, in fact, to have a resurrection from the dead. Now, we understand that, and we've seen the promises of God, and that they produce a resurrection from the dead. Now, if you had your wits about you, you'd have noticed that we've missed the major feature. If the reason for putting people in the grave was right, and there is hopelessness in that situation, how can you righteously bring the man out? Right? That's a problem. That's got to be thought over. Now, let's think about it for a moment. You remember when I said that there are those who would say that man is already immortal and can live either in heaven or in hell, and that forever, there is a problem. They don't usually deal with this problem, but this is a problem. Look, let's take the man who's going to live, in, live forever in hell. He's going to go on now forever in hell, right? You've got an eternal sinner in an eternal God. You can't have that without changing the nature of God. It couldn't be. Your God is not the God you started with now. Otherwise, you've got sin in God, you know. That's impossible. I mean, this is another way of completely annihilating this, this matter of having eternal torments. You can't have an eternal sinner in an eternal God. The thing just, just doesn't make sense. And if you just think it deeply over, you'll discover that it changes the very nature of your God. And you can't have that. Therefore, some people try to get over that by having universalism, save everybody. You're in the same trouble. Now you might as well not have started here with this. Deal with that situation and just save everybody right at the beginning. Save the man and everybody else as it goes along instead of going through all this trouble of trying to do it by purging people. Now what we want to have a look at is how God deals with that. How can you bring man out of the grave righteously? It's one, one subject that Christadelphians as a whole, find somewhat difficult in explaining. I'm not surprised. It's not easy. I mean, righteously now, not by any other means. It must be righteous. If that was righteous, then this must be righteous. Otherwise, again, we change the nature of God. You can't do that. God is not fooling us by this resurrection from the dead. Whatever he accomplishes, he's going to accomplish by a perfectly righteous, godly manner. And it's that that I want in part two, part three, if you're ready for it afterwards, uh, to have a look at. So if we can have our break, and when we have it, be pretty quick about it, then we'll get cracking on part three.